say like in my late teens, early twenties was when um, I felt a little bit more pride being a San Franciscan born and raised. Uh, and that I was, I felt proud to take up my space here. That was poet, activist, and scholar, Thea Matthews. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. In this podcast, Thea, who was born and raised in the Excelsior, talks about growing up with a single Latinx mom and how that played into Thea's own identity as a Black woman. She shares how her view of San Francisco evolved as she became an adult, and how the city has shaped her art. Toward the middle of the podcast, she reads her poem titled St. Francis. Thea ends this episode talking about racist moments in her life that stand out and form a backdrop for her embracing the black side of her humanity. Here's Thea. My relationship to San Francisco is a complicated one. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a moody uh love hate relationship because <laughs> uh, i can walk this street like i can walk uh anywhere in the city just about right with my eyes closed i've been to a lot of cities or a lot yeah i've traveled but i've never lived anywhere else mm-hmm. um and honestly even though the city is pretty small like yeah there are probably like some alleyways i have not ventured into you know, like there are some streets where I'm like, nope, I don't think I've ever walked down that street before. Totally. Um, but I am definitely a walker. I walk a lot. Uh, like, yeah, especially living now in the sunset. Like, I'll walk from the sunset to the hate, the hate to the mission, or to the Castro. I can just keep going. You know, walk even just to know uh, Bernal Hill area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's pretty easy actually to get anywhere in the city. Yeah, uh, I'm black, Mexican indigenous. Uh, my dad, my biological father, pretty like aligned with like the great migration and just having roots in the Carolinas and the, the South. Mm-hmm. And then folks migrating up to Detroit and then from Detroit coming out to the Bay. Um, but I grew up without my father. I grew up in a single mother household. And so definitely strong shout out to the single moms and to the mothers hustling, trying to make, you know, what's right, what's okay for children and being born, like, yeah, being raised in a city by a single mother. Right. Um, so I don't really, can't really speak too much on my dad's side, you know? I mean, my mom is light-skinned Mexican. She doesn't pass for white, but she, Similar features, you know, of mm-hmm. a pillar skin. Um, to an extent, my grandmother's mestizo, where there's like Portuguese, indigenous, and some Spanish, right? Mestizo. And then grandfather from my mom's side, my, my maternal side, is definitely much more indigenous mm-hmm. in the land, soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish I knew more, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's photos where you're like, damn, you know, like, like native. Right. Um, but a lot of, you know, due to colonialism and erasure and ethnic cleansing, right? And then years and years of internalized racism and hatred. It's like so much remains a mystery. And it's, it takes a lot of work, you know, to know more. And I wish I knew more. So grew up with, you know, my mom. So grew up in the Mexican side. 
And it was interesting because, yeah, like I said, there was internalized racism. You know, I have a sick aunt who called my brother and I nigger babies. Mm. Um, you know, it took adulthood and my own politicized uh, internal movement. Not that I carried internal racism with me, but I would say more so a deeper, profound appreciation for a black and brown liberation. How, mm. like, if we are truly fighting for freedom, we must all walk arms. You know, it can't be this one minority pinned against another. And that's right. the classic default, right? Tactic of war from the powers that be. And yeah, it was really disheartening to just hear that of like, mm -hmm. bitch, you ain't white, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I say it really frankly. Um, and that was really hard growing up. Cause when I'm walking down the street, no one's like, oh, you know, even though I mix with Latinx, it's like the master status is being black. Right. Um, that's what appears more. Black mm -hmm. takes over precedence, right? Right. Um, or, and so growing up from the Mexican side, from my mom, like I didn't, I, I didn't learn Spanish because my family, it wasn't for whatever reason, like it wasn't okay to learn Spanish. I hmm. really had families who really fought to preserve the language, but it's only what within like the last 20, 40 years, I will get this totally wrong. This is something to, something to be checked, but basically my point being is that being bilingual was really kaput against. Like it was not uh, something that was like, oh, an advantage. Right. It was like, you must learn English and you must really adopt this, this way, right? Like you live in white America, you must be white America. You must work to assimilate. Assimilate, mm-hmm. And that is exactly what my uh, maternal side sought to do. Okay. And uh, that was really painful. You know, that's just from the family. I don't even spoke about the school. But point being, my childhood was like, I was never black enough, and I sure as hell wasn't Mexican enough. Hmm. Interesting. You know? Do you know what brought your mom or her family here? My mom's Chicana. She's born. She's born. Oh, she's from here. In San Francisco yeah. or? Yeah. Oh, okay. So half, you're half second generation San Franciscan. Oh, um, yes. I'm ha I guess so. Is that what we call it? Yeah, second, yes. I'm second generation SF native. Wow. So do you, and you said um, you grew up in the Excelsior. Do you want to talk about life in the Excelsior? Um, I mean. I'm not even going to start guessing how old you are or when you grew up. So can you just tell me? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm in my, uh, I'm 32. So uh, I was born November 22nd, 1987 at 8.37 in the morning at St. Mary's Hospital. We don't even have babies anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so growing up in the 90s to early 2000s in the Excelsior was a lot, you know, I just, hmm, it was rough. Mm. It was so rough. Because uh, there were high schools back there that then what like there was McAteer, Burton. I just remember seeing like a lot of school fights, like just a lot of fights on the street. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of cool things though too. I mean, point like you know, get a good meal, get a good burrito, mm -hmm. uh, nail salon. I live right next to you know, like my, my first nail salon was like right next, like under the built right next to the building. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know if I have anything to say. Like, Excelsior, 
hopefully can preserve its family uh, culture. Um, and hopefully the Excelsior can stay preserved. I mean, in essence, in many ways, that region of San Francisco remains, I don't want to say stuck in time, but it definitely is timeless. Like there are joints there that have been there for years. And I think it's because of the area and the population. At least from my time living there, it didn't really gain much attraction. Like there wasn't like a hit spot. Like, you know, there might be like one bar at one point, like on Geneva, but for the most part, it's like a lot of families are packed in these small apartments. Um, there's nail salons, taquerias, uh, Latinx restaurants, whether it's like Salvadorian food, Mexican food, pupusas, there's some churches mm-hmm. and a bank, a few banks. Would you say, is it safe to say still largely untouched by gentrification? Yeah, I would say largely untouched. I mean, right before I moved, there was a coffee shop next to a donut shop, and I was very wary of that because that's kind of, isn't that sad? Like the gentrification, when you see a nice up-to-do coffee shop, you're like, "Mm, I don't trust it. But I think it's black-owned, though. So I think it might be, like, cool because I saw something of Excelsior Coffee being black-owned. I could be mistaken about that but yeah i would say that region like that's like excelsior um because there's yeah it's schools it's families it's working class a lot of undocumented folks a lot of of immigrants a lot of people um a lot of children you know i think it may have changed but when i grew up i felt like everyone was a child like there was just a lot of families right so you grew up all the way um like through school there or yeah, I, went to, I was raised Roman Catholic. And oh, I, me too. I'm definitely spiritual today, but I can't say I'm fully like a Roman Catholic, like die hard, ride or die. No, I'm not. Um, I appreciate it. But yeah, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I went to Epiphany K through eight, and then later went to Immaculate Conception Academy for mm-hmm. a few years in the mission at mm-hmm. Catholic high school. And so, um, yeah, Epiphany was walking distance or like a you know a quick bus ride away. And so everything was centered around there and it's tough. Um, yeah, it's not like I was really living life. I mean, I felt like, like most, like my adult, my childhood and adolescence was a lot of survival. Um, so it's interesting looking back and try to bring in like an objective eye to those situations or to what I was seeing. Um, well, I feel like a lot of times we need contrast, like you have to live somewhere else or, or travel somewhere else. And then you come back and you see, you know, you, you need two things to be able to, if, if, if all you, if you spend your whole life in San Francisco or your whole life in the Excelsior, that's your world. That's all you know. I'd say like in my late teens, early twenties was when, um, I felt a little bit more pride being a San Franciscan born mm-hmm. and raised, uh, and that I was, I felt proud to take up my space here. <laughs> that, yeah, because prior to that, I really did not give, like, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. Like, or, like, I didn't have appreciation of SF or, you know, I just, yeah, I didn't really care about the city. It wasn't until I realized that people flock from all over the world to come to San Francisco, where I was like, 
huh, you're coming here. I guess I'll stay here then a little bit longer, you know? Mm. Um, this was pre-gentrification. This was like pre-neocolonialism and just another wave of ethnic cleansing and shoving out artists and color. This was just simply like meeting tons of people that were like, I don't know, have this romanticism regarding San Francisco and like the old culture of the 60s. And because, yeah, so much took place here. But so much of, I, th I think what brings people out here is a memory. Mm -hmm the facade, you know, or like, yeah, memory, where it's not necessarily rooted in real time anymore. What mm -hmm. the past, mm -hmm. what's happening right now. Because, um, yeah, San Francisco has been liberal, has been open, but when you're bringing in a lot of conservatives in here, you know, there's now a strong, it's more than a streak, like definitely... San Francisco is kind of somewhat becoming conservative. I mean, we're still progressive, quote unquote, but when you have like the owner, or what is it? I actually really want to look this up because it's pretty, it's like just disgusting. Um, oh, it's just looking at like Donald Trump's largest donors. One of them is the principal owner of San Francisco Giants, Charles B. Johnson. Charles Johnson, yeah, that's when I, when I learned that is when I stopped going to Giants games. The second collection of poems that I'm working on um, really is a great homage to San Francisco. A lot of it takes this look at like the crises, the crises of addiction, homelessness, houselessness, gentrification, the impact that it has on communities of color, on black people, um, people just surviving, like poor people, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I wrote this poem. I do want to share it. Absolutely. It, so... It's titled St. Francis, right? Because what's what's the name of the city? San Francisco. So St. Francis. St. Francis, right? This is kind of going back to our Catholic school days. <laughs> was this amazing human being, right? Who really embodied the essence of altruism and service and really power to the people, like anti-capitalistic. Right? So how do we have this mega capitalistic metropolitan that is so fucking money hungry, it's not even funny, be named after a city or a saint, be named after a saint that is anti that, that is like the complete opposite, that gave up all of his riches to be poor, right? Gave up all of his privilege to be among the animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and serve others and so it's just interesting so i wrote this poem titled saint francis where it's like saint francis sold out abandoned his years of feeding the people tending to the poor saint francis sold out he wanted more 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 new money more new cafes more new palm trees more new condos more families displaced more overdoses, more encampments, more, more, more. St. Francis sold out, bought out, gave out, stripped the land, stole and renovated homes, only to place for sale signs for the incoming upper class. St. Francis is a con, a thief, a liar. St. Francis don't give two shits about you. All he wants is new money, driving tech, startups, be a shiny new car, for someone who ignores the blight on their block while whining about the president and human rights issues 
at least four states away. Yeah, I go, yeah, the politics and just even my observations on uh, this city that I love so much that I, truth, like truly, I love seeing my peregrine falcons and my red-tailed hawks. I love seeing the, listen, and listening to the sparrows um, and finches. I don't necessarily like pigeons, though. I think they're just fine. Uh, oh my god! Can we bond? I am like I have an irrational hatred of pigeons. No. If you don't mind, can we go back to um, so just kind of moving through your life history? Um, when we were talking about your your like schooling and and living and growing up in the Excelsior, um, would you say part of part of what um, led you to start seeing what the city was or what the neighborhood was, was a function of getting older, you know, getting wiser, what, what, what have you. Yeah, interesting. I guess so. Yes. Growing up, I think, um, I don't know about getting, like becoming wiser. I think it's more so like reaching age, like reaching the age to indulge more, right, right. you know, play and like have fun in devil's playground. Sort of. <laughs> Yeah. I guess I, I'm just thinking like, yeah, wh getting wiser was a bad choice of words. What I, I guess what I meant is, you know, you get older and your eyes open to different yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, it was more so what I had access to. Like as a kid, I just felt like a caged bird, really. Mm -hmm. Just from the experiences of what I was having as a child. Just, I was raised in, just I had a lot of trauma um, and like school bullying and child abuse. And so... Yeah, it was like first decade, decade and a half of my life was just like survival mm -hmm. and live with my eyes down. Mm -hmm. And as my eyes slowly raised, again, it was kind of somewhat more so of like, what was I engaging in and looking at the world in a different lens, so to speak. But, you know, things definitely look better with a drink in hand. <laughs> <laughs> that made me so <laughs> I should be quite honest for some time <laughs> and so that's when I was like I could reconcile like I live in San Francisco and like would have fun and like you know start the debauchery and the escapades and you know coming to on front lawns in North Beach and I was like this is amazing mm -hmm. um, so I would not call that wiser I call it reckless when I became <laughs> when, yeah. when I, <laughs> living and learning Yes, yes. Making mistakes so that you can learn from the mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, becoming reckless and meeting folks and bonding with folk, like artists and students and like, oh, San Francisco. It's like, okay, cool. I guess, yeah, I do come from somewhere awesome, you know, even though it's like now a legacy. And it's still like, I mean, times are changing. Um, but yeah, and growing up too, like I said, I never really felt like I was black enough. You know, I grew up listening to like R&B and doo-wop, which was awesome. You know, my mom loves Motown. And so that was huge uh, as a child. And then I ventured and found punk rock and rock and roll and um, yeah, sex, drugs, rock and roll and that whole type of persona and identity. 
And in San Francisco, you know, it's all like the East Coast where like, you know, black punks always existed or you would find sprinkles of them there. Like, I literally just felt like it added on more of this like sense of alienation. Mm. Um, yeah, like we're like, who is this chick wearing spikes um, and going to Hot Topic? Woo, throwback. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that was really hard, you know, of like, what does it mean to be black? It wasn't gonna be based on the music I listened to. It wasn't going to be based on how I spoke, right? Because I wasn't like fluent, you know, I wasn't speaking a certain way. I speak like this or, you know, it wasn't like the hair. The hair, like natural, but for years I wasn't, you know? Hmm. For years I abided by this Eurocentric aesthetic of beauty that I had to like, took some time to like deconstruct. And so anyway, like kind of in this weird in, like, in-between state, hmm. Um, yeah, it's like kind of I'm trying to think of like when did I know I was black? I knew I was black again when that memory, like, or being told of what my aunt said right. regarding my mother and I. That reminded me. Um, I knew I was black and that black people were treated differently when my grandfather would not let my brother's dad inside his house. And mm. my brother's dad is black. Mm. That I always will remember. Wow. Um, I remember because I didn't have, I had a few black dolls as a child, uh, but having a white doll and rec like noticing white, older white women were staring at me. Mm -hmm. And I asked my grandmother why, and she's like, well, you're carrying a white doll. You know, like, I don't know. It was, I was like, all right, you know, and so this like hyper focus, but other than that, like I was a sprinkles of like few black people, you know, uh, in school, just the sprinkles. Um, when would you say in your life, um, cause it sounds like all those examples you just cited were negative. When would you say you started associating your blackness with something positive and something you could, you could carry and, and you know, draw strength from? My mid twenties. Okay. Not my mid to late twenties. And was that tied to any certain experience in your life? You mentioned that you went to, to Berkeley, right? Yeah. And also like, I know those were negative experiences, but I guess in terms of like being like, a, like proud to be black, definitely came in my adulthood, came when I decided to go back to school. Honestly, when in my pursuit of a higher education, was when, and then coupled with being, getting politicized, that were definitely turning points of like really owning my beauty, owning my blackness, and really coming to terms with like how black is so beautiful and black is dangerous, but yet black is hella powerful. That was Thea Matthews. Join us tomorrow for part two when Thea will talk more about her poetry and activism, especially in relation to the current uprising for social and racial justice. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Hunt. Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse the more than 100 episodes we've done over the last three years. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you see an option to rate and review what we do, we'd really appreciate it. And if you have any feedback or people you think should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong, San Francisco. Thank you.